Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches Luke chapter 9, verses 51, and Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44, in this message from April 14th, titled, The Drama of Palm Sunday. Well, if you are following the church calendar, the Christian calendar, you will know that today begins what has become known as Holy Week. Christians around the world are beginning to celebrate the momentous events that took place over 2,000 years ago. Although there are many things that often separate Christians, here is one thing about which all Christians agree. Holy Week is at the center of the Christian faith. For one glorious week, differences of language, culture, race, and doctrine are forgotten. And what a week it is. Eight days that begin with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter Sunday. On the Sunday before his death, Palm Sunday today, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a donkey to the cheers and shouts of the crowd. And for centuries, the church has memorialized the first day of Holy Week as Palm Sunday because of the palm branches and the cloaks that the people spread out before Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. On Thursday, referred to as Maundy Thursday, Christians remember that Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room where he observed with them the Passover meal. And it was in this gathering that he also washed the feet of his disciples. Holy Week also includes the observance of Good Friday, the day that the trials, the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus took place. As I earlier announced, we will be gathering on Friday with other churches from the valley to commemorate the events of that day. And again, I encourage you to attend as it provides opportunity for us as believers in our valley to come together for worship, for reflection, for fellowship. And then next Sunday, we gather, it's a culmination of Holy Week, as Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The two great events which bracket Holy Week are the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Without controversy, it is truly a Holy Week because it encompasses the most sacred events of the Christian faith. All the things that we hold most dear were proved to be true during the great week in Jerusalem more than 2,000 years ago. In light of that, I would have us spend some time thinking about and discussing the events leading up to and encompassing Palm Sunday. And in so doing, I would have us look at three scenes from the life of Jesus as they are recorded in the Gospel of John. Or excuse me, in the Gospel of Luke. In the drama leading up to Holy Week, the final act opens with eight simple words from Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. For the most part, Jesus spent his life in the region known as Lower Galilee. Except for his birth in Bethlehem and his family's brief sojourn into Egypt, Jesus grew up and lived and worked in close proximity to the Sea of Galilee. 
When he began his ministry, he located in Capernaum and from there went out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to announce the kingdom of God to all who would listen. But he never ventured too far or too long from the region of Galilee. He always came back to the area of Capernaum by the sea. And so when we come to this pivotal verse in Luke's gospel, it's no small matter for it represents a major shift in the thrust of Jesus' ministry. From this point, he will take his message to the heart of the Jewish faith, to Jerusalem and to its center, the temple. We all know what will happen when he gets there. He will be confronted by the religious leaders. Within days, even the masses will turn against him. And before the week is up, he will be crucified. Jesus' decision to go to Jerusalem marks the beginning of the end. This is the gravity of the situation underlying Luke's words when he says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. As the following chapters unfold, Luke keeps reminding us of this point. Let me share these texts with you. In chapter 13, Luke says, And Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Also in chapter 13, In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, Jesus said, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. In chapter 17, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. When we come to chapter 18, we read, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And then just before he makes his way into Jerusalem, we read in chapter 19, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. In other words, everything that takes place in Luke's gospel from chapter 9, 51, takes place under the looming shadow of the impending cross. And this is what Luke wants to impress upon you and me, what he wants to press, impress upon every reader. It's here that we witness Jesus' resolve. We witness his sheer determination to obey God's will regardless of cost. He set his face. In other words, no circumstance, no event would deter Jesus from going to Jerusalem because he had an unwavering resolve. From the world's perspective, he had nothing to gain by traveling to Jerusalem, but everything to lose. Yet Jesus would not be dissuaded. He believed it was God's will and God's destiny. To set his face toward Jerusalem meant something very different for Jesus than it did for his 12 disciples. You can see the visions of greatness that danced in the heads of the disciples when they heard Jesus say that he must go to Jerusalem. Remember what took place just a few verses earlier? In Luke chapter 9, verse 45, just a few verses before verse 51, Luke tells us that an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. For the disciples, Jerusalem and glory 
were just around the corner. They perhaps were thinking that the time had come for Jesus to establish his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. Perhaps they were wondering what would be in store for them, what it would mean for them when Jesus took the throne. What position would they occupy in this kingdom that he was now about to establish? But Jesus had another vision in his head. He knew the pain, the agony, the suffering that awaited him in that city. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. This is implicit in the language of the text. Luke didn't say he set his face to go to Jerusalem because he ran out of things to do in Capernaum. Or the Galileans wouldn't listen to what he had to say. Or he thought that he might have better opportunities in Jerusalem. Not at all. Luke says, it came to pass when the days were near that he should be taken up. He intently set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here we see God's plan of salvation in effect. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, not because it was convenient or compelling, but for this one reason, because he believed it was God's will for his life. He believed that his time had come. And once determined to follow this course, he would allow nothing to stand in his way. You see, Jesus was not accidentally entangled in a web of injustice when he made his way into the great city of the Jews. He was not a helpless pawn in the hands of the religious leaders. The saving benefits of his death for sinners were not an afterthought. God planned it all out of infinite love to sinners like you and me. He appointed a time. Jesus was the very embodiment of his father's love for sinners, saw that the time had come and he set his face to fulfill the mission, to die in Jerusalem for our sake, for you and for me. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus made it very clear that he was not a pawn in the hands of the religious leaders. He made it very clear that his crucifixion in Jerusalem was not an afterthought. He made it very clear that he, was not, that he wasn't entangled in a web of injustice. No, he said very clearly, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And so we see this first scene in, in the life of Jesus. He sets his face. He's with resolve. He makes his way to Jerusalem. The second scene that I take you to is the scene where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a foal of a donkey. Luke describes for us the situation, the scene in verses 28 to 40 of Luke 19. And here we read, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where, you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. 
and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It is possible that Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was not the only procession the city witnessed at that time. Roman governors who ruled over Judea were based in Caesarea and only visited Jerusalem on special occasions or in times of unrest. Therefore, it is safe to assume that Pontius Pilate, who was the governor over Judea, had res was residing in Caesarea. And therefore, because it was a Jewish Passover, made his way into Jerusalem. And Pontius Pilate would have made a grand entry into Jerusalem prior to the Jewish Passover to ensure there would be no unrest, no uprisings, and no insurgents against the Roman Empire. Imagine the spectacle of his entry. Pontius Pilate leads Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot. Each soldier was clad in leather armor polished to a high gloss. On each centurion's head, hammered helmets gleamed in the bright sunlight. At their sides, sheathed in their scabbards, were swords crafted from the heart of steel. And in their hands, each centurion carried a spear, or if he was an archer, a bow with a sling of arrows across his back. Drummers beat out the cadence of march. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was sent, meant to send a message to the Jews and to those who might be plotting against the Roman Empire. The spectacle was, remind, was meant to remind the Jews of previous uprisings that had been squelched by the Jews, by the Romans. History has it that prior to the death of Christ, there were others who had, there were those who had uh, initiated uprisings, insurgences against the Roman Empire. And the Romans with, with bloody power made us put a stop to it, killing thousands of people in abusive ways. And so it was meant, Pontius's, Pontius Pilate's, his entry into Jerusalem was meant to intimidate the citizens of Jerusalem themselves who might think twice about joining such a rebellion. What a contrast to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. If Pilate's procession was meant as a show of military might and strength, Jesus' procession was meant to show the opposite. Ron Carlson, who served as an associate professor of evangelism and church development, made these observations regarding Jesus' triumphal entry. He writes, there is no doubt as to what claim Jesus was making by his entry into Jerusalem. Approaching the city on a donkey symbolized the king riding to the capital in peace. The behavior of the crowd confirmed this acclamation. 
Cushioning the road with spread garments and leafy branches was an ancient practice of preparing the way for royalty. The shouts of the people initiated by the disciples testified to their belief that Jesus was the coming king. Though the religious leaders of Israel were upset by this behavior, Jesus did nothing to appease them. Rather than silence the crowd, he rode to Jerusalem as a king would ride to his victorious coup. But death, not a political victory, was awaiting Jesus at the end of his ride. Why did Jesus permit this, permit this kingdom pageantry when it would lead to a hideous robe, a reed for a scepter, a mock crown of thorns, thorns, and an execution epitaph reading, Jesus, King of the Jews? Why allow this public display, which would lead to a cross on a hill outside the city gate? The multitudes, even the disciples, rightly understood that Jesus was riding to Jerusalem as a king. They, however, misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. For the last act of his pageantry, the passion and resurrection of Jesus was a heart of the reign of the Savior. Without the cross, there would be no eternal peace, no conquest over sin, no victory over death. Indeed, without the cross, there would be no kingdom of God at work in the world. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, On Palm Sunday, he pressed his claim upon the people, the claim that he is king. For those plotting his death, he forces them to act when and how he chooses. He is never more kingly than when he approaches the cross. And so the triumphal entry is proclamation of King Jesus, that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is to what the Old Testament pointed to what the prophet spoke of and preached about. He is God's chosen one to deliver mankind from spiritual bondage. The scene of Jesus on that donkey riding into Jerusalem. But there's one more scene I would have us consider. The scene of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Follow as I read the account from Luke's gospel, beginning at verse 41 of chapter 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time. Of your visitation. At the height of the celebration, amidst the loud praises, Jesus began to weep. There's only one other occasion when Jesus wept, and it was at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. In the Greek language, a word used to describe Jesus weeping speaks of bitter anguish as though one was mourning the dead. As a road to Jerusalem winds around the southern shoulder of the Mount of Olives, you come to a crest of a small rise. And as you reach the crest, the whole city of Jerusalem suddenly appears before your eyes. And apparently it's an awesome, breathtaking sight. When Jesus came around that crest, he saw the city and he weeps. 
it must have seemed very strange. Amidst the shouts of, of praise for Jesus to begin to weep. But the answer to, as to why is not hard to find. Jesus was not weeping, not for himself, but for the city that was about to reject him. Jesus saw beyond the cheering crowd to the mob that would soon crucify him. He knew on Palm Sunday that Good Friday was only five days away. And through the dim mists of history, Jesus saw into the future to the time when the Roman army would destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. He saw the day when the Roman army would destroy the city stone by stone, killing men, women, and children by the thousands. Because a nation would reject its Messiah, such awful judgment would soon fall. Why? God's son had come and they did not recognize him. God's son had come and they crucified him. Jesus knew the crowds were fickle. He knew the leaders were plotting against him. He knew the jeers would, the cheers would soon turn into jeers. He knew on Sunday what would happen on Friday. He knew the cross lay directly in his path. He knew all these things, but he went anyway. King Jesus rode toward the city because he had an appointment in Jerusalem. In the days to follow the crucifixion, some would look back and say, if we had only known. But after Palm Sunday, no one could truly use that excuse. They knew. No one could ever say he didn't make himself plain. I mean, how could Jesus have made himself plainer? He had made himself so clear that no one could miss it. On Palm Sunday, no one was under compulsion, but everyone who witnessed his arrival into Jerusalem had a clear decision to make. Jesus had called for a decision and the nation had rendered its verdict. They rejected the long-promised Messiah and they had him crucified. Why? Ray Pritchard puts it this way. Three words sum up the official reaction to Jesus on Palm Sunday. Fright, frustration, and anger. Frustration because so many people cheer him as he rides into the city. Anger because they now see him as an enemy of their interests, an enemy who must be eliminated. Fright because they do not know what Jesus is up to. Three scenes from the life of Jesus. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He rides into the city, mounted on the back of the foal of a donkey. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem. In conclusion, I want to draw application from each of the scenes that we examined this morning. And I put them in the form of a question. My first question, are you? Am I willing to journey into hard places with, with unwavering resolve in our service for Christ? Jesus' mission included journeying into Jerusalem, where he would be arrested, tried, condemned, abused, crucified. But unlike Jonah, who ran when God called him to prophesy in Nineveh, 
Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Often we are more like Jonah than like Jesus. When God taps us on the shoulder and says, I want you to go there or there or there, we're prone to ignore his call, to run from his call, or to even question his call. We're going through a series by Andy Stanley entitled Tough as Nails. And he has emphasized the tenacity and determination of the early Christians as they followed and served Christ. In our Western society, we value safety and security. But a follower of Jesus doesn't value safety and security. They value the king of kings and serving the king of kings and obeying his call. Those early Christians, in spite of persecution and suffering, they remain true and faithful to their call. Take a few moments and ask yourself, what would you What would be a hard place in our community to journey into for the cause of Christ? When you look at our community, where, where do you see a difficult place? Where do you see a hard place? A place that you may not want to venture into. But God is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I want you to go there. My second question, are you, am I, Announcing the reign and rule of Christ through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he was making it very clear that he is the promised Messiah. The long-awaited king, the the Jewish nation had longed for. And he gave to his disciples and by extension to you and me, the responsibility to announce his reign and rule through proclamation of the gospel as well as demonstration of the gospel. And we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of this year, we went through a series entitled Sent, Living a Life on Mission. A series based on John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus said to his disciples, as a father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And in that series, we were challenged by Michael Frost to develop some missional habits. And those missional habits include blessing. To bless three people each week, at least one of whom is not a follower of Jesus. Another habit he encouraged us to develop and to foster was a habit of eating with people. And he said, eat with three people this week. And one of them who is not a follower of Jesus. And then he challenged us to be listeners to spend one period of the week listening for the Spirit's voice where he is guiding us and taking where he would want to lead us. And he encouraged us to be learners, to spend at least one period of the week learning Christ, especially by reading through the Gospels, to know how Christ responded and how Christ lived and on how he interacted with people in the crowds. And then to understand that we are sent people to journal throughout the week all the ways that we are alerting others to the universal reign of God through Christ. I ask you this morning, are these becoming rhythms in your life? As we engage ourselves in these habits, we'll be able to discern where God is at work, where he is leading us, and we'll have opportunity to bear witness of his rule and his reign. My third question that I leave you with this morning 
are you? Am I? Moved to tears for those who are not Christ's followers. Luke said that when Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he wept. He wept because he knew the Jewish nation would reject him and therefore suffer under God's judgment. You and I are often moved when we see the suffering of those living in more torn regions of the world or those whose lives have been ravaged by storms or some other catastrophes. And our hearts should be moved when we see and hear of those things. But let me ask you, when was the last time you and I wept because of the lostness of our neighbor, the lostness of our coworker, of our friend, our roommate, our spouse, or our business associate? When was the last time we were found on our knees crying out to God for their salvation? Because we know that if they do not receive Christ as Savior, judgment awaits them. In conclusion, I summarize what I say this morning in this way. We will have an unwavering resolve to announce and demonstrate the reign and rule of Christ when our hearts overflow with compassion for those who do not know Jesus personally. On this Palm Sunday, may we be individuals who learn from those three scenes of Jesus' life. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the powerful message Jesus demonstrated as he made his way to Jerusalem, as he entered that city. And Father, I pray that we would learn from his life, from his example. I pray, Father, that we would not shirk back from those hard places. I pray, Father, that we would understand that you are at work in this world and you're giving us opportunity to announce the rule and reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, break our hearts for those who are outside of Christ. We all know of people who are bound for lost eternity, bound for judgment because they have never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you've given to us that responsibility. And so, Father, I pray that as we think of the gravity of their situation, that tears would flow from us. But not only tears, but that we'd be motivated and have that unwavering resolve to take your message within our neighborhoods, to our community, and around the world. Empower us by your spirit. For it's in the name of Jesus, our pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Church or search on your favorite podcast app.